0: Okay, Deuteronomy 24. We're going to get there in a minute, okay? Let me pray, and we'll get us uh, started in God's Word this morning. Father, as we approach your Word, we know that this is completely true and what we always need to hear. And wherever we are in our lives with regard to difficult topics, we just pray that the light of the truth that Jesus brings to us would shine in our hearts in a profound way and just show us the path we need to walk in and... If we've got regrets from the past, Father, we know that's covered in the blood of Christ. But we also know we need to choose to walk obediently where we are today, right now. So we ask for your help in Christ's name. All right. Matthew 19 is really the definitive text on divorce, and that's really going to be our subject today. Um, One of the great tragedies of the last half century, I guess now, is that we've, come to this place where it becomes really easy to break marriages apart and break families apart. The divorce culture in America has a lot of factors that are involved in how it came about, but part of the fundamental issue is how we see ourselves, how people see themselves in relationship to the world. A few years back, a professor at the University of Virginia summed it up pretty well, so I'm just gonna read you what he says. He said, prior to the late 1960s, Americans were more likely to look at marriage and family through the prisms of duty, obligation, and sacrifice. A successful happy home was one in which which intimacy was an important good, but by no means the only one in view. A decent job, a well-maintained home, mutual spousal aid, child rearing, and shared religious faith were seen almost universally as the goods that marriage and family life were intended to advance. But the psychological revolution's focus on individual fulfillment and personal growth changed all of that. Increasingly, marriage was seen as a vehicle for a self oriented ethic of romance, intimacy, and fulfillment. In this new psychological approach to married life, one's primary obligation was not to one's family, but to oneself. Hence, marital success was defined not by successfully meeting obligations to one's spouse and children but by a strong sense of subjective happiness in marriage, usually to be found in and through an intense emotional relationship with one's spouse. The 1970s marked the period when, for many Americans, a more institutional model of marriage gave way to the soulmate model of marriage." And he goes on and on, but he's right. I mean, that's a really good, concise description of what happened over the last 70 years or so. It's a sea change. It's a sea change in the way people think and how we think governs how we're gonna behave and what we're gonna do. Uh, We became the centers of our world and people didn't used to think that way. In other cultures, people often still don't think that way but that's kind of what we've been taught. It's how everything works around us. It's how the media teaches us that people are supposed to be and um, that's where we ended up. There's nothing outside of us more important than our desires and our happiness. That's really how a lot of people react to the world, how they think about things. That's a pretty bad development in a world that's filled with fallen, sinful human beings. If we were all good, that would be fine. But we're not, so it became a disaster. And you will notice, in general, that way of thinking has not produced, I think you would probably agree with me, it has not produced a more contented and happy society. Any culture that values self-fulfillment over everything else is gonna see a divorce explosion. That's just gonna happen. And the price is pretty high, especially with children and their own sense of security and well-being, but also for the culture at large because the ramifications extend out to all sorts of things. And the law actually changed that to make it so much easier right when that attitudinal change was starting to happen. Governor Reagan here in California in 1969 passed the first law in the country which did away with what, um, well, it created what you call no-fault divorce. In other words, nobody's ever at fault about it, and uh, legally speaking, and it made it really easy. He said that was the biggest mistake he ever made as a governor or as a or as the pre- in his political life because he had no idea it would cause such a massive explosion of divorce throughout the country. He just didn't even see that coming. He thought it was a fair thing, but. Um, but this sort of libertine, self-focused society is not the only cause of a widespread divorce. Jesus grew up in a divorce culture as well, and that was not like our culture at all. Surprisingly, divorce was really easy to obtain in the first century in Palestine. Um, It was a religious and a pretty conservative culture. And, but Jesus lived in a time of easy divorce. So it's not that everything has to be all loose for a divorce culture to rise up. It just depends on what you're told. So um, they weren't a people that were all about themselves. They were all about duty and all of that stuff, but they were given permission to a divorce for any reason, so that's what they did. The rabbis back then gave the green light To divorce for almost any reason, and you're thinking, well, how could they do that? Well, they they would look at Deuteronomy 24. That's why I asked you to turn there. So I'm going to read that and see if you can see how um, easy it is to divorce in this text from what the Old Testament. So this is from Deuteronomy. Moses, okay. When a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house... Or if the latter husband dies who had took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So the key rationale for divorce here is found in the first verse. Because she finds no favor in his eyes because of some indecency in her. Now, the rabbis, by Jesus' time, had taken, this is 1,400 years later, Jesus, after this, was written. So by then, they looked at this text and they made an assumption and they asked a question. And the assumption was that Moses said it was okay to get a divorce. In fact, they say to Jesus, he commanded it. Well, he doesn't command it. I mean, he's not ordering anybody to get a divorce. Um, The only command in Deuteronomy 24 is that a husband can't get his wife back if she goes and marries another man after it. That's the only command. So there's no other provision one way or another in terms of commands. All the rest is just describing a situation that apparently happened often enough for there to be a law about it. But the rabbis in Jesus' time took this regulation as a broad permission to divorce whenever you want it. And they asked the question, so that's the assumption, the question that they asked was this, What is an indecency? What would that mean? Well, the word itself literally means nakedness and a shameful exposure. And it's used that way like 50 times in the Old Testament. And in this one place, translators have usually sensed a a more metaphorical or a broader meaning to the term, meaning indecent or shameful behavior in some way, an indecency. Well, the rabbis came up with a meaning for that word, which was a whole lot closer to what does your wife do that bugs you? I mean, that's pretty much the definition of an indecency. That's really true. That's really pretty much what they said. Um, we have their writings, so we know what they taught. Um, they wrote out examples of behavior they considered indecent enough to, to allow for divorce. Going about with loose hair. Spinning wool in the street talking with other men in a familiar way, ill-treating the husband's parents. And here's a quote, speaking to her husband so loudly that the neighbors could hear in the adjoining house. And there were a bunch of other things. Sam, could you hear my wife just now? Yeah, I could hear her. Baby, you're gone. <laughs> Out of here. Rabbi Akiba actually said a wife could be viewed as indecent if her husband found a prettier woman to marry, a trophy wife. Or if she put too much salt in his dinner. He said that was indecent, too. So that's how far it went. I mean, once you go down that line, it's pretty much a free-for-all, right? And wives were given some latitude to divorce as well under rabbinical teaching, even based on their husband's job. If he was a tanner or a coppersmith, she could get a divorce. Come on, those are pretty, Gross jobs. Tanners smell really bad. Um, Anyway, uh, they had all kinds of their things. If he had a certain illness, certain kinds of illnesses, she could divorce her husband. Needless to say, the divorce rate was pretty high, probably, although we don't have any numbers and nobody did surveys back then. But um, Jesus Definitely addresses it, so it must have been a pretty big issue. But there was this um, rabbinical reaction to this very broad understanding of divorce for any reason. So some rabbis said that that reading of Deuteronomy 24 went way too far. Way too far. They said Deuteronomy 24 plainly means adultery. That's what the indecency is. Or lying to your husband about your um, virginity before the marriage. They said those are the only things that would allow for a divorce. Guess which view was more popular amongst the copulation of those rabbis? Yeah, the, the more liberal one, right? How did you know that? So let's talk about Matthew 19 now. Let's go back to there. So, um, We find here Jesus on the move from Galilee towards Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, and the time of his suffering is drawing near. So it starts in verse 1. It says, um, it came about um, when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Okay, then the key here for us is verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And the reason for, the question, the reason for asking the question is interesting for us. They didn't ask because they wanted to know. They were testing him, it says. They were trying to trip him up somehow. Why on that issue? Well, because I think they were sure he would take the unpopular view of the minority of rabbis that... Um, it was extremely limited circumstances in which a divorce should be allowed to happen. And that would make him less popular. And the Pharisees were always interested in making Jesus less popular. So if they could get him down on paper, attacking what everybody kind of believed to be the norm, they would, um, they'd have him, you know. It's kind of like a person today, if they say, what do you think of homosexual marriage? And you say, um, uh, well, I kind of think it's the way it should always have been. Hater! You're a hater, right? So right away, you're the bad guy. So it's kind of like that. If you go against this permissive divorce thing, the Pharisees wanted to paint Jesus as some extreme person um, because they're pretty sure what position he's going to take. And you know what? That is the position he takes. He he does exactly what they were hoping him, for him to do because, well, well, holiness is an extreme position in a world that's sinful. It always is. So... Um, Of course he's going to do that. So anyway, Matthew 19 is the most complete and the most authoritative text we have on the subject of divorce. So for a Christian, this is really important. And these are the words of the Lord Jesus. Remember their question. They want his opinion on the very liberal divorce practices of the day. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he begins with this answer, uh, with these words, he begins with these words, have you not... Red. Uh oh. Where's his answer going to come from? Not a not a rabbi. It's going to come from the Bible, the Word of God. His answer is found where answers are found, which is in the Word of God. So he doesn't take um, the Pharisees to Deuteronomy 24. That's really a side text on divorce. It's not even really about whether divorce is permissible or not. It's just about Taking her back. That's the only command that's really there. And um, they were ignoring the main text. And so Jesus, the best place to go for him is the beginning, the very creation of marriage, what God intended for marriage and what God said about marriage. So Jesus is quoting in his answer Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. So verse 4 here he, He answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? You know what, that might be, this might be the first time in history of the world where these are the most controversial words. He made them male and female, but that's another subject. (laughs) Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So that they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together Let no man separate. If you had a religious wedding, you probably had those words spoken to you when you got married. When a man takes a wife and begins a new family, something really profound happens. Two people become one in a very deep and profound way. A union takes place. He leaves and cleaves, leaves his family, his father and mother, and he cleaves to his wife, and they become one. It's a relationship that's different from all the rest, that becomes the primary relationship of his and her life, this, this union, this marriage. They are made one, not two, but one. And that unity is established before God. It's how he views the relationship. So she's, she's more than a friend, she's more than a lover, she's more than the bearer of children, they are truly one in God's eyes. And so Jesus makes this solemn pronouncement, it, Couldn't be any clearer than this. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. No human being should separate that. That's his doctrine of marriage. It's really simple. That's his command. That is his command. So human beings are not to break this God-ordained unity. That was really radical stuff in the first century for him to say that. It's still pretty radical. But he meant it then, he means it now. And that's why marriages should be, you know, they always, it's part of the marriage ceremony as well, but Christians used to always give this counsel to one another. Marriages should be be made thoughtfully, reverently, discreetly, uh, you know, thinking about it, really what you're getting into with this relationship. I mean, you're supposed to do it with wisdom, carefully, good sense, not just because we're in love. I mean, that's fine to be in love, but that's not the basis for a marriage in and of itself. If you don't look at character and think through all these other issues that could come up, you're being very unwise. Um, And that's why they should be made carefully, because it's it's a God thing, and it's a, a one flesh thing, and he says, once that's done, you shouldn't break it. It's permanent. It requires making a judgment on character and maturity and watching your potential spouse relate to family and friends and coworkers and all those kinds of areas of wisdom because character will matter most in the long run in a relationship. So choose well, that's kind of a key thing there. Once married, A Christian has to follow Jesus and have the mindset that divorce will not be an option. When my my wife and I got married, that was our rule. We'll never bring it up as an option, no matter how much we might fight or how uh, hard things might get at certain times. We'll never throw that out there, ever, and we never have. We don't, that's not an option. We know it's not an option. You know what we have to do? Work on it. (laughs) We have to work things out because uh, we know we're stuck with each other forever. And she loves to say forever and ever and ever. and the, She's quoting a movie there, but the, it rings in my head very frequently. But, but I'm, I'm really happy about that. <laughs> no, but divorce is not to be threatened or discussed or contemplated, really. Um, that commitment keeps us working on our problems. And if things turn sour, you don't have to suffer alone. Get help. Get counseling. Talk. Pray, forgive, love, devote yourselves to unity. Work together, but if you need outside help, come and get the help. That's what we're here for. That's what your brothers and sisters in Christ are for. Work on it is the main idea. There's absolutely no excuse for two reasonable, God-fearing people to have a bad marriage. There's no reason for that to happen. There just isn't. Only stubborn pride and sin will break what could be salvaged with grace and Christian love. So it just doesn't have to happen. Marriage as God intended it is for life. People don't like to hear that, I know. And the Pharisees were certainly put off by this strict rule. I mean, they run immediately to Deuteronomy 24, their favorite text in verse seven. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? It's like Moses told him to do that. Hey, you better make sure you send your wife away. He didn't command that. All he said was, the command was you can't get her back if she goes off and marries again that's all he said and Jesus says verse 8 because of your hardness of heart Moses permitted you to divorce your wives but from the beginning it has not been this way so they're making it sound like Moses commanded it Jesus says he didn't command it he permitted it and why did he permit it because you've got hard hearts So if that ever gets to a point where a relationship is gonna break up, somebody's got a hard heart in that mix somewhere. So um, Moses accepted that a certificate be granted her so that she would have proof of her husband's rejection. That's a legal matter, that's not approval, it's not a command. And Deuteronomy assumes, and here's the key thing, we talked about that assumption, Deuteronomy assumes that the divorce is based on an indecency, right? And Jesus himself rejects the burnt toast theory, the too much salt theory, um, the trophy wife theory of indecency. Oh, I found somebody prettier. You are indecent. Um, That's not, Jesus rejects all of that. The regulation was made permitting divorce because of the hardness of people's hearts. They did not have the mercy or the grace of forgiveness, so there was a reluctant permission given. But Jesus says, from the beginning, it has not been this way. So the Pharisees had forsaken the very nature of marriage as established by God, and they were clinging to this text in Moses, which really had nothing to do with the foundation of marriage or what it's all about, or anything like that. They were really acknowledging their own hardness of heart by going to that text, looking for a, a loophole somewhere. Now, nobody is saying that marriage is easy, and I know I know things can be very hard sometimes, but... The believer should never be looking for outs. That's not what they should be doing. Looking like they were looking, how can we rework this word indecency to give us all kinds of outs? That's not what we should be thinking about. The very... Act of seeking an escape clause Reveals an internal hardness A spiritual problem And a Christian is not supposed to have a hard heart We're not supposed to maintain a hard heart Even though we might fall into having one sometimes I mean we're supposed to be the opposite of that You know the new covenant The covenant by which we were saved It actually says in Ezekiel That that covenant is God taking a heart of stone out of us And giving us a heart of flesh A soft heart That's what it is So if we're showing up with a hard heart We shouldn't be acting on that We should be begging God to soften our hearts again. You know, if the Son of God says, I have a hard heart, I hope I would be sharp enough, wise enough to cast myself on my knees and say, soften my heart. Soften my heart. I've got a hard heart. Show me where I've allowed myself to be hardened to your will. Open my eyes. Help my unbelief. Soften my heart. Our attitude towards marriage should be first, first and foremost... How do I honor God and what God says about it? So, and Jesus is telling us what God says about it. So my heart has to be, how do I honor God and what he says about it? One obvious way is to fulfill what we ourselves probably said about it to our spouse when we got married. For better, for worse, right? I don't know if people really mean that when they say that every time, but that's what we promised, And that promise in the wedding service is placed there. That that wedding service was written based on Matthew chapter 19. Those words were created out of what he's saying here. We acknowledge up front in the ceremony itself, things may not turn out for the better. We know that that's possible. Life is not guaranteed anything. We... Life holds all kinds of unpleasant surprises in all kinds of different ways. Things go wrong. Our health falters. A weakness overtakes us. We aren't everything we hope to be. We don't have everything we hope to have. Things, the same things are true for our spouses that are true about us. Not everything is just a sure guarantee that we're going to be okay and suddenly be all wonderful all the time. But once we've said we're gonna stick it out, we've gotta stick it out as a believer. The objection that springs from a hard heart, the sinful heart, is that we only go around once in life. I mean, this is how people express it to me. Look, this is my only life, right? So we need to adapt and change, get ourselves out of this problem situation and put ourselves in a better situation. We just have to do that because we are the most important thing going but that's not true for a Christian God's word is the most important thing going and what God wants to make happen is the most important thing going so I've got to see all of my afflictions and unhappiness in the light of that going around once in life is exactly what we shouldn't focus on but it is true we only go around once in life but we don't need to grab for all the gusto we can that's not we need to glorify God in that one life we've only got 70 or 80 years right? That's what Moses says. Your life, Psalm 90, your life's about 70 years. If you're blessed, it's 80 years. My mom just turned 90 this week, so she's super blessed. But um, that that's still comes to an end. And it goes quick. Who's old here? Who's old like me? It goes quicker as you get older, doesn't it? Yeah. Just like click, 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 click. Hey. It's, it's like July, and I thought it was January, you know, just recently. I was like this boom, boom. Fat, the long, I remember those long summers when I was a kid. It just seemed like they went on forever. Now the summer's like gone. What happened to summer? So um, it goes faster and faster. But you know what? Eternity lies before us. And we are promised as believers that it's going to be glorious. So whatever happens to us in the 70 or 80 years or so, It's just not that important. It really isn't. How does Paul say it? The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed to us. That's really true. And if you really believe it, whatever your afflictions are, whether they're interpersonal or just physical or being in poverty or anything like that, it's only for a short amount of time, really. And so you have to see it in that light. What's coming is much better, much better than the best... Here, All hardships here are going to be swallowed up in glory, all of them. So what's, what's rare here today, though, is holding on when it's hard. What's, what's rare is keeping promises that we made. So it's right there in verse 6. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And Jesus doesn't stop there since they are reaching for excuses and permissions and all this kind of stuff. Look down at verse 9. This, this statement is absolutely staggering. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, that's his definition of indecency, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So a biblically unlawful divorce leads to adultery, because God won't recognize a a marriage you just walked out of because you weren't happy. Uh, It might be legal according to the state, but that doesn't mean it has God's approval on it. So don't be surprised that our Lord Jesus expects us to obey God and not just follow our desires or emotions. And just because many, many people take God's truth lightly doesn't mean we're supposed to take it lightly ourselves. Sometimes when you you talk to a Christian that's kind of already decided to divorce, and they have no grounds except they're just unhappy, um, you can see in their face, they might not verbalize it, but you can kind of see it in their face, the tone of their voice, a hardness, a, a hard resolve to defy God, they know they're doing that, but they're gonna do it anyway. And yes, I will commit adultery if that's what it is, so be it, he's gotta forgive me anyway, that's kind of the attitude, and that is a frightfully unholy way to approach life. It's a horrible way to think about things. All Jesus is doing here is telling the truth based on how God ordained marriage and God's purpose for marriage, that's what he's doing a man told me one time he said a long time ago he said I'd rather be back in Vietnam than be married to my wife which I assume means his marriage was rough <laughs> we are supposed to have that attitude about sin I'd rather be in Vietnam than sin against my God that should be our our attitude not, I'd rather be in Vietnam than be with my wife. If, if, it's like, if it's that bad, then I've got a lot of work to do. I'm gonna get some help. I'm gonna do everything I can to make it better. But I should have that horror of, of sin, not a person. You know, I'm supposed to love my enemies as a Christian. And if, my, if I'm married to my enemy, that doesn't change. <laughs> That's still an obligation I have. What does is, what is Jesus say about our enemies? Do good to them, bless them, pray for them. That's what we're supposed to do. That would be the voice of faith. The world tells us we deserve this and we deserve that. And the world says, why be unhappy? And you can do better, so vows are broken and Jesus as Lord is just set aside. And a divinely ordained institution is shattered beyond all recognition. And look, every marriage has troubles. Every marriage, well most do. We met a guy recently last year that elderly gentleman in town, who's, uh, he's widowed now. He was married to his wife for probably 50 years or something like that. And he asked us, he knew we, I was a pastor and this is my wife, you know, we're in the couple. And, and he says, do you guys ever fight? And we look at each other with big eyes. We go, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he said, my wife and I never fought. And I believed him. I didn't doubt what he said. But, and I, but I wanted to know how they got, how they got to that. You know, how did, how did you, he said, we never had a fight in our marriage. And I said, well, how did you guys, were you, are you just both so amenable and wonderful people, amiable people that you just got along so well? He goes, we, neither of us ever had to win. That's what he said so we never had a fight because we didn't have to win that's pretty wise so I like to win myself that's probably why we have fights but but um, <laughs> but I should probably give up that that desire to win I think that's pretty rare what he had I really do usually marriages take work a lot of hard work sometimes and re- to make a relationship really work because sin makes the oneness thing hard for most people because we don't want to be one we want to be ourselves a lot of times and um, most of us do want to win so but as believers in Christ we definitely owe it to the Lord to make the effort to endure trying times to love when it's hard to seek help when we need help to be accountable to receive good counsel to be humble all of that I've seen Christians file papers that have never even seen a marriage counselor they they weren't even interested in that well that's that's just wrong if you can't go get help then the problem's probably with you. I mean, you've got something that's a hard heart right there. That's that hard heart issue going on there. And Jesus doesn't go with the hard heart. Moses permitted because of hard hearts. Jesus says a believer should have a soft heart because you have the Holy Spirit in you and you don't need to have a hard heart. Honor Christ in every way that you can. You are never alone. He's always there for you. And mature fellow believers are always there to help you as well, to lean on, to pray with, to encourage you. So Jesus' teaching on divorce is really clear. Don't. Don't do it. uh, Because marriage is sacred. Now, he does allow for this one exception. There are things that irrevocably break the marriage covenant. That doesn't require a divorce but it permits a divorce and here he mentions infidelity he doesn't use the word indecency he uses the word porneia that's the Greek word there and um, that's where we get our word porn Pornog, pornography is, is to write about or picture porneia which is this um, it's sexual sin so that's what he's talking about that is the one thing that can break it so some kind of an adulterous situation or obsession with totally wild abandon or something like that it covers a variety of sins uh, pornea, sexual sins they're always sexual in nature so that's the most basic violation of the one flesh principle or covenant there modern Americans think sexual activity is nothing it's absolutely it's the most natural thing in the world it's nothing God created it God created it as something uniquely binding uniquely binding that's why you save it for marriage and that's why it's only permissible in marriage because it's marital glue. That's what sex is. That's what intimate relations are. It's the true union. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.15, you know this passage, he says, uh, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? You're you're making that one thing happen with somebody you don't care beans about. For he says, the two shall become one flesh. The one who joins himself to our Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality, he says. Pornea, it's the same word. Flee it. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? I thought I was my own. No, not if you're a Christian. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. There's so much there in that text, but for now I just want to focus on this one flesh idea. Sexual intimacy is the culmination of one flesh. That's the essence of it there. Marriage is the one approved place for that level of union, oneness. Otherwise, the oneness is broken. Violated might be a better word. So that's why Jesus permits divorce in those circumstances. Pornea is covenant breaking, it's taking a sledgehammer to the one flesh principle. And if that happens, the betrayed partner has a right to divorce. That doesn't mean they should, but it means they can. I mean, restoration is not only possible, but in my experience being a pastor for almost 30 years, restoration can result in a very healthy marriage if there's forgiveness and working together on a adulterous situation. Infidelity is a betrayal of something sacred, but that can be overcome with a lot of work. But there are things so destructive of the marriage bond that Jesus does permit divorce, but um, way too many divorces happen for other reasons that he doesn't permit here. Now, of course, in a culture like ours, which worships self, professing Christians have tried all kinds of ways to get around what Jesus is saying here. And I think I've heard all of them, but there might be ones I haven't heard yet. But the disciples understood exactly what Jesus was saying. If you marry, you're in it for life. That's the general rule here. And they were so accustomed to growing up in a divorced culture, they were more shocked. The disciples were more shocked than the Pharisees at what Jesus was saying. Mark's Gospel says the disciples actually took this conversation into a house with Jesus. So after they were away from the crowds and away from the Pharisees, they they kept this conversation going. Matthew just records the conversation, verse 10. The disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. I mean, if there's no way out, the risk, the risk is enormous. These these, these guys are real romantics, aren't they? (laughs) Well, to be fair, in the first century, romance was not the foundation of most marriages in those days. Spouses were chosen by family and certainly at times with the couple's input, but people were much more practical about marriage in the ancient world. Marriage was encouraged, weddings were happy events, everybody was thrilled about it, but typically romantic love grew out of a relationship that or it's already started rather than creating it. Which system works best for the most happiness? I don't know, that's a good question, I'd love to find out about that. But anyway, the disciples want an out, they flat out want an out. If they need it, you gotta, you, gotta, you know, it's like uh, having a prenuptial agreement, right? Um, If I need it, just if I need it, I I trust you, dear, but I just got to be careful with my stuff. But Jesus' answer is really interesting. So they want the out, and he says, verse 11, he starts talking about being single. And he says, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. The statement is the one they made, swearing off marriage altogether. It's better not to marry. And Jesus says, well, you know, not all men can accept that but only those to whom it has been given. So he says it's not easy for most people, but there is a special grace from God that gives people the grace to live single and to be contented in a single life. Paul had that grace in his life. It's not uncommon, but I say it is the minority that can actually do that and feel good about it. So Jesus is saying, don't be rash in denying yourself marriage just because it requires commitment. I mean. And just like so many areas, life just isn't perfect. We've already talked about that. Often it's accompanied by suffering, that's true. Emotional suffering, physical suffering, financial, all kinds of grief, that's life. It's a fallen world. But like I said, we're not destined to be here forever. For a Christian, the most glorious and fully satisfying eternity awaits us. So this span of years is not all there is. They're looking at it again as sort of an all there is kind of a situation. This is the preface, this life is the preface to our story. It's just the preface, the book hasn't even been written yet. There's so, so much to do, so, such a long way to go forever. There's no guarantees in a fallen world. There's no guarantees of a happy marriage, though wisdom in choosing does help that. But it's not guaranteed. People change, people get ill, people get mentally ill. People sin, people fail, people lie, people withhold secrets. And I've seen Christians in very painful, very painful, difficult marriages heroically remain faithful because if we believe Jesus about divorce, then that difficult place is right where Christ wants us to minister for him in that particular situation. You may think, I don't see any benefit. I don't see the good. I don't see the good of it at all but you don't know how God arranges the universe. It's not your place to see the benefit always to, be, to just live an obedient life. You're called to be obedient, period, and that includes loving your enemies and all of that. If God permits something in your life, then you may go forward with it, but if he forbids something in your life, then he has reasons for that, both generally in terms of society and the health of the society, but also for you. He's got reasons for it. You've gotta live in those reasons. It's true if you get cancer, or one of those things, like we've been struggling with cancer in this body for the last couple of years here, and that's, that's such a difficult thing to see, but you can't just make it go away. You've gotta deal with it. Well, it's the same if you've got a difficult spouse or a difficult situation. He does understand. It's not that Christ doesn't understand. It's that he's ordaining circumstances for a reason. It's not that he doesn't care about your sadness. He, he promises to care for you in your sadness. But God ordains all circumstances and we have to serve him right where we are unless he provides a way or permission to change things. Earlier this morning we read from Colossians chapter three where being a good husband and being a good wife are exactly in the same context as being a good slave. Slaves had no freedom to leave, right? but they were supposed to act a certain way. Well, that's true sometimes in marriages, too. I'm gonna pick up that text again. and Chris read it earlier, but I'm gonna read it again. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. You see, that's true in a marriage as well as just being a slave on some Roman estate somewhere toiling in the fields. I can could, I could be a husband for my shrewish wife she can be a wife before the Lord for a very difficult and mean-spirited husband or whatever you're dealing with there he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality all of that that's all God's word to us just honor the Lord he provides the strength every day to do that to live for him it's attitudinal who am I doing this for? well, I'm not doing it for him. I'm not gonna do it for her. Well, you'd better do it for the Lord because that's what he wants. That's what he wants. And you can do it joyfully for him knowing that he appreciates what you're doing. He smiles on you for doing it. Well, we don't have time this morning for verse 12. So, um, you know, verse 12 of Matthew 19 is sort of whizzed by as kind of being irrelevant for our times. I mean, how many conversations have you had about eunuchs recently, (laughs) right? It's not something we even think about. But I'm starting to see verse 12 showing up more and more in um, Christian writing because things have become so twisted and so bent in our civilization that so so this cultural rush into sort of sexual insanity, I mean, this whole gender confusion thing, that this verse is becoming a lot more relevant lately. You know, when you go off the foundation, the revelation of God's will, the foundation as a society, almost anything goes. And you know what people say? They say... I don't need God, I'm going to be guided by reason. And the first thing they do is chuck reason. I mean, it goes right out the window. So uh, they start living by weird things. So um, this verse suddenly becomes a lot more relevant. And I don't know how I'm gonna address it, but next week we'll try to, we're gonna look at verse 12 a little bit more and kinda of dig into that a little bit there. So I think we should camp there for a while. But, Jesus' words are wise for all times and in all cultures and they're to be followed. So let's pray. Our great Lord, you are the inventor of marriage. You're also the sustainer of the weak and the struggling, the comforter of the afflicted. Let us glorify you in all we do, whatever we do, in word or deed. Let us do it in the name of the Lord in all of our relationships, but most of all in our covenant relationships. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.